Welcome to Caring on the Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring for the Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's your host for Caring on the Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman. Welcome to Caring on the Go. Caring on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine's news magazine, Caring for the Ages. We welcome again Caring for the Ages Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gaelic, to discuss some key articles from the April 2021 issue, including deprescribing, questions on herd immunity in the skilled nursing facility, and where we are today with visitation at this point in the pandemic. Dr. Gaelic is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings. She's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program, and she conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers in long-term care. Dr. Gaelic, welcome back to Caring on the Go. Thanks so much, Wayne. I'm thrilled to be back for uh, another exciting podcast. So, Dr. Gaelic, um, another great issue, in my opinion, uh, in the April 2021 uh, issue of Caring. You know, I have to tell you, I found a lot of passion in um, in this edition. You know, I believe that anyone who works in the skilled nursing uh, environment can reflect on what brought them there. It might have been incidental. It might have been an obligation with a new job or a calling, like for many of us. You know, you lead off with, um, with the editor uh, editorial um, about a discussion of your passion for the long-term care environment, and you conclude with a bit of an invitation. Tell us a little bit more about your editorial and maybe the journey that you portray within it. Sure. Thanks so much, Wayne. So I started out as a nurse in inpatient psychiatry many, many years ago. And as I describe in the editorial, um, well, I worked with older adults. And at the time, I really liked it, but uh, I mostly was working with them because a lot of the other nurses didn't enjoy it as much as I did. Um, And over the years, um, I was there six years. I um, started getting really tired because I was caring for people with shorter lengths of stay who were sicker. um, And I was never getting a chance to see anybody do better. And it was actually a physician colleague who kind of clued me into his balance in his professional life um, because he was working not only in uh, the acute care setting, but also in long-term care. And ultimately, about a year later, an opportunity came up for me to move to a, a dementia-specific facility. And, um, you know, kind of the rest is history. I, I finally felt like I had really found my uh, professional home um, mm. because I was able to um, have these longer-term relationships with people, which I, I hear time and time again from AMDA members and, and from um, others in the field that that um, longitudinal relationship really is is so important. Sure. The 
the the other things that I've really enjoyed about working in post-acute and long-term care is um, the the chance to work as an interdisciplinary team. I had that a lot um, in the acute care setting as well in psychiatry, um, but you know geriatrics is right there with um, the IDT as well, and. Um, you know, it really was a pleasure. I've gotten to learn from um, a lot of my colleagues um, about different things over the years. From nursing assistants, I learned about how to detect these really subtle changes that they would notice. Um, from some of my physician colleagues, they helped me before I became a nurse practitioner get a head start in terms of diagnostic reasoning. And, you know, we're in these challenging times today, there's not one discipline that can do it alone. So we really do need to um, engage all members of the, the IDT. Absolutely, absolutely. And then I guess lastly, um, you know, long-term care um, really still meets a need for people. And I think we saw this during the pandemic. While um, maybe we weren't seeing as many admissions, I think people were going from acute care back to home. Um, and I, I follow some patients who live in the community um, with their families, and I know some of them were really struggling without that post-acute stay. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, moving forward, we're going to see some of that picking up um, over time. Unfortunately, uh, for people who aren't familiar with the post-acute and long-term care field, or maybe had a bad experience earlier on in their lives, um, they hold that that field in long-term care field in less regard um, compared to let's say acute care office-based careers so my office at the university of maryland although i haven't been in it in a year because of covid is right across the street from shock trauma um, mm. and so all the students really want to go up on that helicopter pad yeah. you know it's it's sexy and um, it's our job really to try to introduce them to geriatrics and show them you know some of the the um, wonderful attributes of, of the field. Yeah. It's uh it's, it's history. You get to interact with history. Um, I spent two years working with one of our residents, wonderful man in his nineties was becoming more functionally compromised with time, but he wanted to be part of that uh, veteran project where they fly veterans to Washington, DC you get actually hooked up one-to-one -one with a veteran and they, they go to see some monuments and they're actually celebrated for their, for their duty, for their duty. And he was in the merchant Marines and the merchant Marines was not recognized um, as a veteran status type thing in the beginning. Um, and then it became, and so he became eligible and two years later, he's, I gave the permission for him to go to Washington and uh, he came back. He was so happy, so happy, told stories of being in the Merchant Marines. And then uh, about eight months later, he died. But gosh, what a what a wonderful impact in the long term care setting um, we had with this older adult who was recognized for his valor um, uh, by a nation. And um, oh, it was so powerful, and it happened in the nursing home. Yep, I, my one of my most favorite stories. A little bit about history, and it has a like local flair to it. But um, I'm hoping others can relate. So um, we were uh, admitted a, a new uh, female resident to this dementia-specific facility, 
and um, learned out in the process of her history that her and her husband had run a, uh, a local children's um, amusement park. And mm. uh, that was quite popular <laughs> in the area. And um, when I let the, the rest of the staff know and her daughter brought, you know, pictures in from when they had run the, the amusement park, it was, um, you know, such a joy. And, um, you know, we got to talk with her more about it because that was something she didn't really share with us. Mm. Um, but how that impacted um, the lives of so many of the caregivers, they all had pictures of when they had been there or when they were younger. So mm. that oh, was kind beautiful. of fun. <laughs> so as I mentioned, Dr. Gaelic, you you end your editorial with somewhat of an invitation. What's the what's the invitation? So the invitation is, I, I would love to hear from um, members of AMDA and from the Caring and um, AMDA on the Go podcasts about really how did you become interested in post-acute and long-term care? Mm. And what are some of your favorite things about the setting? Mm. We have um, a column uh, called We Are P-A-L-T-C. And we would love to, to share some of these um, uh, stories with our readers. Um, so please, please consider reaching out. Um, on the Caring website is instructions about how to submit um, an article. And it, it's not hard, we'll help you with editing, um, but would love to hear uh, some of these exciting stories. Um, I've contributed and I can say that uh, there is nothing that brings a community together more than the sharing of stories. So that's that's wonderful. Um, Dr. Gaelic, I'd, I'd like to go to our next article. Um, Christine Kilgore, one of your staff writers, write, wrote a um, an extremely detailed and impressive article on deprescribing. Now, now, I know what people are thinking. Deprescribing, haven't we been talking about that for a long time? And I know that in 2018, it was a major um focal point 2019 as well this year's annual um uh um meeting as well um we've been talking about deprescribing for a while uh and i think perhaps this article not so much a different twist but a new focus um with key leaders from the society involved and other uh key stakeholders as well maybe looking at how we can change the tide a little bit more. Tell us about, about uh, Christine's article. Sure. So um, we know that, um, you know, while knowledge is power, knowing the right thing to do doesn't always necessarily result in change in behavior. And I think that it holds true for prescriber behavior as well. Yeah, so well. what Christine's article really did was to um, interview several of AMDA's society's leadership group, and it included such members as uh, past president Arif Nazir and um, several other individuals, uh, Gregory Johnson um, and uh, Savine von Priest Friedman. Mm -hmm. and, and um, talked with them about um, their work group and how they're trying to uh, really use an implementation approach um, to get at this behavior change that's necessary in terms of deprescribing. 
And the thrust of the article is if you just kind of say to all your prescribers, okay, you know, during your regulatory visits, I want you to look at this and see what you can eliminate. Um, you're probably not going to be successful. And the approach that they've used um, is one where they target a specific medication or mm. a medication class and work on that individually. And um, some examples that they provide had to do with sliding scale insulin, the use of uh, highly anticholinergic drugs, mm. um, vitamins and supplements, um, as well as you know, a tighter control for anti-hyper uh, for um, hypertension. Uh, so eliminating you know multiple antihypertensives if they're not really needed. And they discussed really a participatory approach, where um, they're pulling in uh, the interdisciplinary team, so the nursing staff, um, the pharmacist. Um, and the frontline staff as well, um, because if you don't have a buy-in from all those individuals, you're, you're likely to uh, just wind up back on some of these medications again. Also, I think it's important to really reframe um, how we think about deprescribing. And I really like um, the way that Sabine refers to it as um, really what you're doing is medication optimization. Yeah. So you're trying to, and you're doing that to try to avoid side effects, um, streamline, you know, uh, regimens and take away medicines that perhaps at one point were useful, but maybe are not any longer or could, you know, the dose could be lowered. And I think if you explain it that way to staff and families, it makes a huge difference. The other thing that um, they talked about in the article was really using metrics and data uh, to let people know where you are with this one drug that people are kind of, or uh, one class of medicines that people are selecting to focus on and provide um, data over time so people can see the results of their work. So it was a very interesting article. Yeah, you know, and what I, what I took away from it is not only the collaboration piece, and you, and you, you, um, you, you spoke about that, you know, but I, my immediate response was, well, wait a minute, you know, people prescribe, shouldn't they be able to take away? And it, it really isn't, it isn't that easy. But when you think about the post-acute setting uh, and the fact that you have people in front of you in real time, for seven, 10, maybe even 14 days, what a great time to say, hey, let's take a look and let's see if we can make some changes safely that will continue to benefit you once you leave here. I mean, isn't that, isn't that kind of an interesting way of looking at it? I, I do, and I think it's a, a great way to kind of explain it to both patients and families because if individuals are, are, are transitioning out of the post-acute facility back home, they don't want to go home with a complicated laundry list of medications given at multiple times. And if you explain it really as we're going to try to do this here while you're in this safe environment, we can monitor you closely to see how you respond. You know, I, I think you'd have more people, um, you know, really um, agreeing with that philosophy. And making sure that you include the primary care 
uh, provider and you know and everything you're doing makes for a very very happy primary care provider as well yes. so great great story and now a word from our sponsor US post-acute care let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations now more than ever post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients at U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. Uh, the next uh, story, and uh, it was so much of a challenge to find uh, stories to focus on because they're all so good. Um, you know, we have uh, within the society some very passionate uh, uh, senior leaders um, about uh, post-acute and long-term care, and their passion is contagious. Physicians like past president Dr. Stephen Levinson and Dr. James Lett and regular columnist Dr. Jeff Nichols. And the author of this paper, um, Dr. S uh, Stephen Fuller, who um, wrote a guest editorial. Uh, he's a pulmonary doctor by, by training and has been very involved in aggregate settings, especially assisted living, uh, and is extremely motivational um, in, ab in his advocacy for post-acute long-term care. But he writes an interesting article that it, I had to read it twice to, to, um, to get to the gist because it was on herd immunity. And I thought, herd immunity in the post-acute and long-term care setting? And then I thought, I got it. Uh-huh. Very interesting. Um, very, very interesting article. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? So Dr. Fuller's article really um, tries to explain to us what herd immunity is and how herd immunity looks different in the post-acute long-term care setting versus the community. So in community settings, because we're spread out, we don't have to reach as high a level of a, of a vaccinated population. But when you're in a, you know, a setting where people are close together, um, there's a greater chance that there, people who are infected with COVID-19 might come in contact with someone who's not vaccinated. And I think the thrust of his article is you know, really saying that long-term care facilities are gonna to continue to be at greater risk than the population at large. Um, and he, he quoted some recent research um, that says that only 78% of residents and 38% of staff um, have so far received their um, vaccination for COVID-19 in terms of national statistics. Now, that was within 2021 and we may see a greater percentage moving forward. But, you know, I think there was some vaccine hesitancy. 
and it's going to be you know crucial over time to try to um, you know impact that to have people feel more comfortable obtaining the vaccines if we're ever going to try to reach herd immunity in these um, you know kind of smaller more tight-knit um, communities yeah it was a it was an interesting concept um, uh, and it just kind of highlights for me how we need to think about the skilled nursing facility and continue to think about these um, unique environments differently than we think about um, other settings or the general population. Yeah, I, I think his, his point was at some point we're going to have to return to a, a more uh, routine pattern of interaction and living in post-acute and long-term care. Mm -hmm. So we can't do physical distancing forever. Um, and, you know, there was a push to vaccinate people in these facilities in the very beginning. Some people, though, were concerned, uh, particularly staff, about receiving something that was emergency use authorized and, you know, didn't have uh, full FDA approval. Right. And um, I'm hoping that there will be opportunities for a second round of vaccines to happen um, for this population so that um, individuals who now have seen over time that in general people have really done quite well and um, hoping we can pick them up on the back end so to speak. No absolutely but that being said um, this article also makes you think about what about the the residents um, because this is not mandatory who are informed or their families who are informed and say I declined the vaccine and how do you fit them into the um, into the model uh, or the discussion um, as well? Sure. I mean, and I think that's an ethical issue. Mm. Um, you know, we legally with an emergency use vaccine, um, most of the discussion has focused that it's really not fair to make it a mandate um, at this point. Um, and, you know, people are even seeing kind of these vaccine passport ideas, like if you have, if you are fully vaccinated, then you can do some things that people who aren't fully vaccinated can't as another form of a mandate as well. So, you know, I, I think actually this gives, gives me a great idea to um, touch base with um, the ethics committee because they've been wonderful in terms of submitting columns. Oh, absolutely. And uh, pose this question to them. Absolutely. So this is just a great example, thanks to Dr. Fuller for providing an article which fosters um, discussion and additional thought. So uh, kudos all around. Um, Want to wrap up with um, our, our last article also by Christine Kilgore. And it deals with a subject that um, the society has taken on, especially at the board level, and actually written a white paper uh, on, and that's, you know, reopening facilities, you know, optimizing visitation. Uh, and you mentioned um, one of the uh, key stakeholders in the society's discussion around COVID-19, Dr. Swati Gower. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, where we're headed now, what the thoughts are now. Tell us about this, uh, about this article. So um, I, I think the impetus for this article really came with um, that initial push to have people vaccinated. And the facilities were concerned because families uh, were saying, when can I come? <laughs> 
and um, you know, in terms of visiting, and that there was not guidance at the time when right. families were asking this question. Um, and so um, Christine was great and interviewed, um, you know, leaders within AMDA, such as Mike Wasserman mm, and mm, Swati mm, Gar mm. and um, several others, and um, Leslie Eber, right. um, who's our uh, uh, medical director of the year, yep. to get their, um, you know, opinions about this because AMDA really felt like they needed to put out some guidance. And a lot of it really looked at risk benefit at that point. Now, since the article um, was written, uh, we did have uh, more guidance come from CMS um, that really, you know, supported basically what these leaders were saying in terms of um, removing restrictions and allowing indoor visitation, but in a responsible manner. So, you know, still with masks, distancing when it's appropriate, um, and saying that vaccination status should not limit visitation rights under mm -hmm. the new guidance unless there's, you know, an outbreak in the facility or um, in the community at large. I mean, how, how cool is it to have, you know, for caring to have access to such significant leaders? I mean, uh, uh, Mike Wasserman in California, he had really changed the tone and the focus towards skilled nursing facility and, and, um, and their needs, you know, hadn't he? Yes. Yeah. And no, it's, it's wonderful to, to really have ac access to, um, you know, leaders in the field to be able to go to when there's not clear guidance um, to at least have, um, you know, suggestions about best practices based on, you know, their experience and all the things that they've been reading and doing. Really a wonderful issue. Um, you know, Dr. Gaelic, I, I also wanted to note be, before we sign off that the the April 2021 edition of Caring also recognizes, and in fact, you, you mentioned it uh, in part, also recognizes this year's Society Awardees. You know, it's wonderful to see the impact that we have on our patients and, and on each other. Yes, and I, I think this kind of gets back to my first editorial. We have to share this with others. Mm. And, and for people outside of post-acute and long-term care, letting them know the wonderful things um, that are going on in the setting. And you know, I think that that will um, do something to help com combat some of the bad press that I, I think post-acute and long-term care receives sometimes. Yeah. We, we are in it together. Um, under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief Dr. Elizabeth Gaelic, Caring for the Ages continues to review and reflect, uh, even as she has said, the wonderful work being done by the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine leaders, members, and community. Take a look at this issue, April 2021. Dr. Gaelic, thank you again for spending your time with Caring on the Go. Oh, thanks so much. References for this podcast can be found at www.caringfortheages.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for Caring on the Go. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. 
If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our new learning management system at apex.paltc.org. Click on podcast and follow the link to this latest episode. Thank you.